Well, good morning to you all. It is very disappointing for Joyce and I not to be able to be physically with you this morning or or next week even. Uh, but we did travel south. We were in Florida for a month. <clears throat> and as a result of that, we traveled through several naughty states. And on the uh, way back, we took the Amtrak back. And so we are here at CMML um, doing our quarantine for a couple of weeks. Uh, it was found out or we were informed after we arrived here that several at the assembly that we spoke at last Sunday uh, had come down with a virus that was uh, very similar, at least in the symptoms to COVID-19. And so people were getting tested and they're going to let us know the results of the tests of the folks there at the assembly. Of course, if they were positive, then we will be locked down here for a couple of weeks. Um, by the time you listen to this video on Sunday morning, we will have <clears throat> already had our testing on, on uh, Saturday morning and afternoon and we'll be waiting for the results of that. If that comes back negative, then we will have to have another test and within four or five days to determine whether we are still negative or not before being able to make a trip home to Connecticut. So it looks like we're here for the long haul and that's very disappointing to us, but at any rate, we're looking forward to um, a time here at CMML where we can have some quiet and have some reflection and uh, we trust that the Lord will use this time as well. So we are going to spend the next couple of weeks reflecting on a couple of the a couple of aspects of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to begin in John. So you're going to turn to, to John's Gospel, a very, very familiar passage that's oftentimes spoken of during the time of the um, Christmas celebration. We're going to be reading that portion. But we're going to concentrate on three aspects, if you will, of the birth of Jesus Christ. We are in the Christmas season, after all, and the celebration of Christmas is being witnessed all over the world with all the different traditions and all the different songs and all the different foods that people traditionally use to celebrate the season of the year. Uh, the Philippines began decorating for this celebration in September and has the longest Christmas celebration in the world, as far as I'm, as far as I know. Here it began not much later than that, at least in the stores with capitalism making the most of, of the season of goodwill and open wallets. But certainly now all over we see lights glowing in, at night in towns, Christmas trees set up on the green, all lit up. And it's really quite a beautiful scene. And Christmas carols are being heard and played in our homes or at the store as you might shop during the COVID pandemic. And uh, we have all broken out our favorite Christmas movies, of course. We have to watch our favorite Christmas movies. And we're making our annual trek through all of them, even though we have seen them over 100 times each. Whenever the actual advent of Christ took place, we don't know. But we celebrate the fact of it each 25th of December. So we're going to take some time these next couple of weeks to look at a couple of aspects of this rather remarkable or spectacular event um, through the use of three passages. The two messages will orbit around three words, words that are quite you're all quite familiar with, the logos, the kenosis, and the pleroma. Okay, maybe the pleroma you might might be new to you. But uh, to most, it will be quite familiar, especially when we look at them in the English. The English are variously translated word, 
no refutation, and fullness in the King James Version. Other translations have, have translated that or kenosis as emptied as the translation of that word, which is its true meaning and true translation, where the King James and the New King James have translated it, no reputation, made himself of no reputation. And we'll observe that when we get there, likely next week. So our text will come out of John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, where we'll explore the idea of this word, and then we'll look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and forth following, that deal with the emptying. And then we will look at the fullness in Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2, all linked to the marvel that we call the first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. So turn with me, please, to John chapter 1, and we're going to read this portion together and the portion in, in 1 John chapter 1. So John chapter 1, please, and it reads like this. And you could quote these, I'm sure. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own did not receive him, but as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me because he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. And now let's turn over for our second reading to First John. And again, these are verses that you could likely quote because they're so familiar to us. And we've studied them and looked at them so many times. It says this in John, First John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifest, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. 
And the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. And let's just pause for a moment of prayer, shall we? Father, we acknowledge once again before you that these are very wonderful and beautiful words that were inspired by you to give encouragement and help to, to your people. We pray, Lord, that as we study them and as we look through these things, we might once again marvel at what you have done, marvel at the great grace that you have shown to us. And so we commit ourselves to this. We ask that your spirit would guide and help us as we think through these things, for we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, prior to this event, there had been 400 years of silence. No voice has been heard from heaven. From the end of Malachi to the dawn of the New Testament era, there is no word from God. The 400 years of silence. It began with the warning that closed the Old Testament. In Malachi, where it said, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So Malachi, which ended with this word of hope, with, a, with the coming of Elijah the prophet, and if you will accept it, the Lord Jesus Christ said, John the Baptist was the Elijah to come. He was the Messiah's forerunner. But in those 400 years of silence, between the end and the close of the Old Testament canon and the beginning of the New Testament, in those 400 years, God was at work. He was laying in place all the building blocks, if you will, of what is now history. History and some momentous events continued to march forward, even though the voice of God was silent. Babylon had fallen from power before this 400 years of silence started. The Medes and the Persians, which had taken their place as the world superpower, had also passed. Now Greece had emerged as a power in the 5th century BC until the end of the 3rd century BC through different periods of his empire and its empire's growth. Rome began its territorial expansion. But even before it could get started, the Celtic tribes would march south through the Alps and sack the city of Rome. And there was not a word from heaven. Plato was born. He grew and began a philosophy that would capture the minds of the Greek intellectual, intelligence, the intelligentsia. Aristotle would come to Athens and join Plato at his academy, at his school. During this time, Philip II made Macedon the most powerful state in, in, in Greece. Alexander the Great was born during this time. Then at the age of 16, he began his military exploits, conquering the whole Mediterranean world and beyond. At 21, he marches at the head of his army of 5,000 cavalry and 30,000 infantry into the east. Now we know that Alexander is referred to, not by name, but he's referred to in the prophecies of Daniel. And all of his generals, to whom the kingdom would be divided afterwards, are spoken of and play a significant part in the, in the uh, prophecies of Daniel. Now, in 33 BC, Israel fell to the Greeks. And in 323 BC, it fell to the Egyptians. 
and not one word spoken from heaven. Not one utterance from the God of heaven. The Roman legions are formed, which would become the most powerful fighting force in the world. The most potent fighting force the world had ever seen to that point. Rome becomes the center of political, military, and economic strength. It became the center of culture. And it blended the cultures of its conquered lands into its very fabric. It established roads, aqueducts, and an empire unsurpassed in the history of the, of the known world at that time. But also noteworthy is that between the time of Malachi and the coming of the Messiah, several prophecies were fulfilled, including the 2,300 days of the desecration. And in the fullness of time, the silence of 400 years is broken. God speaks again into a dark world and in doing so brings salvation, deliverance, hope and forgiveness to this dark world. In the fullness of time, he sends his son. God speaking now to the world in Son, and this Son through whom he speaks is God himself in the person of Son. Now, what is meant by the phrase then, in the fullness of time, or at the right time, in the fullness of time? Now, some will say it, it, it deals with the idea that this was the perfect time for the Messiah to be born, because all of the, the, all of the stuff that Greek had put into place, that uh, Greece was a universal language at the time. Everyone could speak Greek. Everyone could understand Greek. And so it had a common language. There was many new roads that were made by the Roman Empire. And getting around from each area of the Roman Empire became much easier than it ever had in the past. And so God chose that specific period in time to send his son in order that the gospel would have an easy course in being disseminated throughout the known world at the time. Now, that may have something to do with it, but I don't particularly agree with that idea of that being the fullness of time in which he sent his son. Christ came when he did in fulfillment of specific prophecies. Now, we mentioned just a couple of moments ago about Daniel chapter 9, where he speaks of the 70 weeks or the 77s. And from the context, these weeks refer to uh, groups of seven years, not seven days. And we can examine history and line up the details of that first 69 weeks. The 70th week was the week that's yet coming. That's the time of the tribulation that is yet to be. But those first 69 weeks have already been fulfilled. Now, the countdown to the, to the uh, 70 weeks was, as you will remember from your study of this in the past, the going forth of the command to, to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. And that can't, command was given by Artaxerxes in 445 BC. After seven or 62 weeks, the anointed one would be cut off and would have nothing. The ruler the people of the ruler who was to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and that will that end will come like a flood, meaning that their destruction would be complete. Now we know that if we follow this, and if you look at the illustrations given by several different men, you will find that the sixty-nine weeks comes begins that last week of it begins when Christ comes in 
to the city of Jerusalem and offers himself as king. And he's rejected. And then he is cut off. And the old King James would say, not for himself, but really it means he was cut off and had nothing. In other words, he came into this world at the right time to fulfill the prophecies that God had given, even through Daniel and many others as well. And he came into the city of Jerusalem. He offered himself as the Messiah, as the king, and they rejected him. They cut him off. They crucified him. And he never entered into his kingdom. He had nothing. But the time is coming when he will again return. And then he will establish his kingdom in which there will be no end. And that is the time that is yet to be after the 70th week of Daniel takes place. So history began with in the beginning God created. The message of renewal of all things began with in the beginning was the word. Now we're going to review these things just briefly and we're going to keep an eye on our on our clock here, although I didn't even look at the clock when I began, so I have no idea when I started. I have no idea how long I've already been going. I guess if I look down on the little meter here on the video, I can keep an eye on where I am, where I'm at. So let's review, let's review these very familiar verses. In the beginning was the word. Now that little word was is a verb here, and it's in the imperfect tense. Now, why is that important? Why do we want to get into that kind of grammar? And we don't want to belabor this point. But the imperfect tense is the tense that speaks of continued action. Now, it's different than the present tense. The present tense might say, John was asking for help. The imperfect would say, John kept on asking for help. You see the difference? John is asking for help. That's the present tense, it's an ongoing action. The imperfect would say, John kept on asking for help. Now, if you apply that to the first phrase, it might be read like this. In the beginning, the word kept on being. It is there in a continued sense, not in the sense of coming into being in the beginning, but it was the word in the beginning kept on being. And we have the continuation of that through the first two verses. Each time was is seen here. Each time that verb is found, it is in the imperfect tense. The word kept on being with God. The word kept on being God. He kept on being in the beginning of creation with God. So that opens up the beauty of this passage. In the beginning, God, the eternal Son of God, was in the beginning was and kept on being the word and the word kept on being with God and the word kept on being God. So these opening verses places the word's existence in eternity past with God and sets the stage for John's clear and wonderful Christology, which is unmatched by any of the other uh, gospel writers. He has a Christology that flows through this narrative, and it's not chronological. He does it through seven signs and and, and seven uh, witnesses and, and all of these different things that he has put together. But he, he displays in it 
clearly the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Luke also, as I've shared here before, places the deity of Christ clearly into his birth narrative. He does it in another way, by the use of the word or title curios. And we've seen that in the past, and we don't want to labor in that very long. But the, the Septuagint continually uses the word curios in, in its translation of the Old Testament for the proper name of God, or Lord, all capital letters, or Yahweh. So in quoting from the from the Septuagint in his birth narratives, whenever he is speaking of God the Father, Yahweh, he uses the term curio, or the uh, translators of the of the Septuagint use the word use the word curios. Then in a wonderful fashion, when Luke interjects Christ into the narrative, in Elizabeth's greeting, he says, or she says, but why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And the same term is used. Luke could have used a different term, but the Spirit of God inspired him to use the exact same term. Why is it granted to me that the mother of my curios, the mother of my Yahweh, should come to me? The same term is used now of the Lord Jesus and a New Testament Christology in the Gospel of Luke begins and he carries it on through his, his narratives. Now, switching gears just a little bit because we need to or we're going to run out of time. How are we to think about God? What I mean by that is how is it that we know God? Now, first of all, we can know him if he, we can only know him if he reveals himself to us, if he shows himself to us, declares himself to us. We know him in creation. If we read in Romans chapter one, he is powerful. He is the God that is all powerful. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The creation shows his might and his power. And we can know him in that sense through the creation, but there's nothing there of his character. There's nothing there in creation that speaks of his character. We can know him by his acts, by all the miraculous acts that he's performed. We can see him in his work through the flood. We can see him in Sodom and Gomorrah, pouring down judgment. We can see him in a flaming bush, in the wilderness, which Moses saw and was amazed at looking at it, but wasn't moved until it spoke to him. He saw it as a mere curiosity until it spoke to him. All these miraculous acts of God down through the history of the people of Israel, the Passover, the plagues that came onto Egypt, all of those things declare to us the mighty power of the God of the Bible. We shall know him. Not necessarily through those miraculous events. We shall know him, not merely or only through the creation which he has made. We shall know him in his word spoken to us. God is a speaking God. He is a God who communicates. He spoke to the prophets. He spoke to Moses, a prophet. And the words that he spoke were written down. He breathes out his word. Words themselves can be impersonal. But when you know the one who spoke them, you know him 
they become alive. To know someone, you come and dwell with them. You spend time together. Now, you know more than just words about them. You know him. You know his character. His words with personal acquaintance speak to our souls, which is why the word of God to us who know him is alive and speaks to our hearts. It's more than just black and red ink on a page. It is more than the latest novel or self-help book. We know the one who wrote. We know the one who spoke. And the events become meaningful and lasting. He commands and his commands are fearful and powerful. It is the acquaintance or relationship with him that make them alive to us and meaningful to us. Without that, they might have been simply nice stories, nice accounts, good moral lessons, but they have become so much more than that to us. When we are speaking about knowing God, it is different, isn't it, from knowing each other. When we speak about knowing God, it's different from knowing each other. I know my wife best, and then my children, then my grandchildren, because I have physically spent time with them, had conversation with them, questions and answers and dialogue with them. I know something of their inner workings and thinking. I know physically, and I know non-material things about them, things of the soul, as well as things of the body. I can watch them grow. I can watch them learn and mature. And it's a wonderful thing to behold. It's a wonderful thing to watch your grandchildren mature and grow. It's a wonderful thing to watch your wife mature and grow. It is difficult to understand how we can have such a personal relationship with the God who is there. How do we have that same kind of relationship with him? He is the God whom we have not seen, but love. To have a relationship to a transcendent God seems quite lofty, almost arrogant to declare, were it not for the work of Christ. That is what this gospel is all about, as are all the books of the New Testament, both the narrative letters and the apocalypse of John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifest, and we have seen, and we bear witness, and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us, John would declare. What a beautiful statement. We must not lose, my brothers and sisters, we must not lose the wonder of the incarnation. We must not lose the wonder of it. We think on it often, and never more so than during the Christmas season, but in all the buying and selling, and all the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, do not lose the wonder of God revealing himself in the person of the unique Son. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophet, as in these last days spoken to us by Son. And it is a marvelous thing. It is a wonderful thing. It is a whole means of your salvation that Christ came into this world. And now he has spoken his final word to this world. And that final world word is 
my son. What then does the term the word convey in our in our text this morning? Some have suggested that it was used by the philosophers of Greek and Roman thought to speak of the great expression that emanates in and through all the universe. This power is not clearly defined. It has no name. It is, it is a power that has created everything that you see. This force brought it into existence. Yet this cosmic expression cannot be touched. It is detached from humanity and the worlds it has made. To use this terminology in this way, you can see how the Stoics, you can see how the Greek philosophers may be agreeing readily with John's opening words until they reach verse 14. In the beginning was the word. Yes, they would say. And the word was with God. Yes, they would say. And the word was God. He was that powerful force throughout everything. Yes, we would agree. And the word became flesh. All things were made by him. Yes. Without him, there was not anything made that was made. Yes. And the word was made flesh. No, wait, no, no. Impossible. This, this word never became man. But perhaps that's missing the point as well. Perhaps that is not really what this title the word is trying to express to us not the philosophical ways that the the Greeks might use it but it is the notion of divine expression God is expressing himself through the word throughout all the Old Testament he spoke to us through his word the Genesis count creates the, the testimony of the effectiveness of God's word. He speaks and things come into being. Let there be light and there is light. And he speaks and things come into being by the power of his word. And both the psalmist and the prophets portray God's word in close to what might be considered personal terms. You find that in, well, let's go to it. Let's go to Psalm 33. In Psalm chapter 33, we read these familiar words in verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together in a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. There's that personal nature of God in his creation. Turn over. We're in Psalms, so let's just turn over to 107. There's another portion there that, that does the same thing. 107, and we're going to read verse 20. 107, verse 20, where he says this. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them. From their destruction. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness. And for his wonderful works to the children of men. He spoke his word. He sent his word. And his word was powerful enough to heal them. To give them back what they have lost. His works of deliverance. By his mighty voice and by his word. He did them. And you can see them over and over again. But I'm going to turn... 
uh, over and over again in the Psalms. But let's turn one more to one more in the prophets. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55. And here he says in verses 10 and 11, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but will accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing which I sent it. The power of the word of God, the power of his voice, the power. Well, I'm sorry for that little glitch. It may appear as a glitch, or Ed may be very proficient and just tack these two together so they don't even look like a glitch, but somehow I pushed the wrong button and I shut myself off and uh, I have to go back and pick up from where I left off. We were talking about the power of God and the power of the word of God. This is the expression coming from God. The, when you speak, it is taking what is in your mind and then expressing it out through your lips, out by your tongue, so men can hear what is going on in your mind. God expressed himself in his progressive revelation. All that was in his mind, all that he was thinking to reveal to man, he spoke out and progressively revealed himself to man, revealed his plans. Revealed the future, what he would do, when he would do it. Revealed a redemption that was going to come through the seed of the woman from the very beginning. And then all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the new covenant, uh, old covenant, into the new covenant that he promised to Jeremiah. He is making provision through his son, his begotten son, his only begotten son, to bring about salvation to the world. In the beginning was and kept on being the word. And that word kept on being with God. And that word kept on being God. He is the expression now of God to mankind. He was the very God who created all things. And without him, there wasn't anything made that was made. In him is life itself. In him is life itself. And the life opened up man's eyes so they could see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Beautiful things. And the word became flesh. And the word was made flesh. And now the word changes. And it has this idea of at a point in time, this one who was the word, who kept on being the word, who kept on being God, that same one now took upon himself the form of a man and became a man. That is an unbelievably profound truth of the word of God. Unbelievably profound truth. And they beheld him. Those early disciples, those earlier, early followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, they saw him and they saw his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. 
Now that term begotten is an interesting term, and we use it all the time. We, we're used to saying, talking about us being begotten of God, as Peter would say, that we've been begotten again to a living hope. And then later, later on, he says we were born again, not of uh, corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God. And so the word begotten and the word born again are the same idea, are the same truth. Begotten, however, has this idea of a uniqueness to it. Then what do we mean by that? And uh, I have to be careful in the way I choose my words here. Begotten means that you have a father and you have a mother. And you are begotten of your father in union with your mother. And you were born. And when you were born, you carried with you and carry with you still certain characteristics of your parents. They carried characteristics of their parents and their parents before them. And this DNA that is built into each one of us can be traced back. We have the same characteristics and sometimes it's just the same the same way in which you look. You have the physical characteristics as well as, as personality characteristics that are like your parents. Now, I look sometimes at, at, uh, at Aaron, uh, probably seated in the audience this morning. And when I look at Aaron McWilliams, I see my sister. She has the physical characteristics of my sister, Lori. And, and I know I, I wouldn't have to question who her mom was because I could see it in her face. And I see it in the face of her children. Physical characteristics. But there are also other characteristics that make us who we are. And some of those things we have learned from our parents. Some of them we learned instinctively. But we carry about, the point is we carry about the DNA of our parents. The person of Jesus Christ is the only begotten of the Father. He is the uniquely begotten one of the Father, which is what that term would mean. He is the unique Son of God. He had no mother. He was born of the Holy Spirit, placed into the womb of Mary, which we remember during this holiday time. And the one that was born of her would be called the Son of God. He is the only begotten of God. He carries in him the characteristics, the DNA, if you will, of his father. He always went around doing the will and purpose of the Father. The words that he spoke, he spoke the words of his Father. The words that God, the Father, had given to him to speak. The miracles he performs is to the glory of his Father. All that he does is to bring honor and glory to the Father. He bears within him the characteristics of God. He bears within him the love of God. And we're going to see more of that next week when we look at that portion in, in Philippians. So I don't want to get ahead of myself at this point. 
but he is the only begotten of God. And he is full of grace and truth because the Father is full of grace and truth. He is life because his Father is life. He is light because his Father is light. He is all of these things because he is God incarnate in the flesh. He is the only begotten of the Father and he is full of grace and he is full of truth because his Father is full of grace and full of truth. And he bears the identity and the characteristics of his Father. Now, no one has seen God at any time until the Son came. And when the Son came, the only begotten of the Father, bearing all these characteristics of his Father, came into this world. He has declared him. So as we celebrate this time of, of Christmas once again, as we review these words once again, out of the Gospels, out of the Gospel of John, out of the Gospel of Luke, which gives us the most complete um, picture or narrative of the birth accounts. As we look at Matthew and see the portions that he adds as he's seeking to show us him as the King of Israel. As we reflect on these things once again this season, remember, remember that God, the very God of God, entered into this world in the form of a babe in order to save you and to redeem you from your sin. It is amazing. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And may the Lord bless his word to our hearts this morning. Father, we give you thanks for the son. We give you thanks that you sent your son into this world to redeem us. God, your very self, came into this world and spoke to us in the person of son. Oh, Father, we're so thankful for the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're so thankful for the salvation that we have in him. And we're so thankful for this time of the year when we celebrate the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we also remember that this is not where the story ends. We remember that he will come again. And one day we shall see him face to face. We will hear him. We will see him. We will look upon him. We will handle the word of life one day ourselves. And so we give you praise and we give you thanks in Jesus name. Amen.